The Walk the Mile podcast is produced on Gadigal land. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which Skeg Starlinghurst stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. May our reconciliation be an ongoing process of love and compassion. Hello everyone, I'm Gary Lee Lindsay, school chaplain at Skeggs Darlinghurst and you're listening to Walk the Mile, a podcast that opens up conversations that we need to have. Thanks for tuning in everybody and today... We have a special guest. Her name is Siobhan Lamb, and Siobhan, uh, Dr. Siobhan Lamb, Siobhan uh, was a full-time teacher at Skeggs for how long, Siobhan? About 10 years. 10 years in the science department and well-loved, and uh, she had to leave because you had to go overseas, didn't you? Yes, so my family moved to Singapore for my husband's work. That's right. And you were, how long were you in Singapore for? Um, just over a year. My husband was there for nearly two. Right. We were there for just over a year. Right. And you were there, when you say your family, there's you, your husband and four children? Three children. Three, Three children. Yeah, don't give me another one, Gary. There's enough. <laughs> Maybe I'll There's enough. I know some people dog. work with five, but <laughs> me. Three children. And uh, since you've come back from Singapore, was it when you started, when you were in Singapore that you started this business? So I started the business um, actually late last year. But when I was in Singapore for the first um, six months or so when I was there a little bit more, I worked at an international school for neurodivergent students. Right. And which was great. And I was head of science and head of executive functioning skills there. And then I branched out and the laws in Singapore had just changed where neurodivergent children or, or children, disabled children now need to have an education, whereas before they could leave school much earlier. And so I started working for the, the Ministry of Education where I went to different schools to help the teachers learn to teach autistic children specifically. Right. So in terms of terminology, so neurodivergent, autistic, kids on the spectrum, how important is that um, in terms of the work you do or identifying, well, let's sort of just talk about kids at this point. So look, I'll I'll give you the terminology first so you have a, a big umbrella of the terminology. So Judy Sinner coined the term neurodiversity, and neurodiversity is exactly like biodiversity. It just means that we've all got different brains. Mm -hmm. We we all process information slightly differently. Then under that umbrella of neurodiversity, we have neurotypical and neurodivergent. Neurotypical people process information like the majority of people. Neurodivergent people process it differently than the majority of people. Then under neurodivergent, we have autistic, ADHD, Tourette's, gifted people, 
um, dyslexic, dysgraphic, dyscalculic. All these other people sit under that neurodivergent label. Right. You look at how you use the terminology. I think first and foremost, and Gary, this sort of sums you up completely, but first of all, <laughs> you have to listen to people and use the terminology they want you to use for them. Right. And so you get to, in this world, everyone should get to identify exactly as they want to. So, and is that, is that uh, something that you've come across that people are promoting more, like for themselves? They're saying, you know, you can't just call me uh, on the spectrum or you can't just say that I'm... Yes, and not only are people promoting this more, but I see more and more people not listening. Right. A person might say, I would like you to call me autistic. And I've heard people say back to them, teachers, educators say back to them, well, no, I was taught to use person first language, so I can't call you autistic. I have to say you're a person with autism. No. And what do you think the issue is there? Why do, why do people because sort of come against that? There's a great piece by a woman named Christy Forbes, um, who's just a phenomenal woman, and she says, if you struggle to call me autistic, that's something to do with you, that you're looking down on me and you feel uncomfortable with that. So right. you question your own stuff about why you can't identify me as I want to be identified. Yeah. So, so it's, it's a very... It's more the discomfort of the... Uh, of the... Of the other person. Of the listener, possible listener. Um, the other thing is, 90, in the last poll, 97% of autistics said that they prefer identity first language. So right. until the person says, no, I'd rather be called Siobhan with autism, yeah, 97% say they prefer identity first language. That should be where you start. Right. And, and why is that? I mean, what, what, why do you think that's important for, um, let's say, for education? Because in order to educate someone, they need to feel completely and utterly embraced and safe where they right. are. Yep. A student feels safe and embraced by the teacher and embraced by the, the, the school yeah. or system, they will be able to be vulnerable enough to learn because learning takes a bit of a risk. It, it takes you to be vulnerable to say, I don't understand this. Yeah, sure. And that vulnerability will only come when you feel safe. And yeah. that safety only comes when you feel embraced. The thing is, is being autistic is intrinsically a part of who you are. It yeah. is intrinsically the way we move, talk, function, process. And so you can't, to say someone has autism, you are trying to separate the person from the autism. Yeah. And that's saying that I'm not really safe because this person likes me but doesn't like a huge part of me. Yeah, sure. And they're only Whereas identifying with the autism. You're not identifying that being autistic, yeah. your neurology is how do you function. You, you yeah. You can't a person's neurology 
from the person themselves. And I get that, you know, often I speak to people who say, I don't want to be, you know, the poster boy or the poster girl for a depression. Or I don't want to be, um, you know, if I get this diagnosis of anxiety, then I, that's all I am, you know, or bipolar or whatever. Uh, is that the sort of thing you're saying? So, look, we've got a long way to come, but I tend to like the term identification rather than labelling because yeah. labelling has a really negative, inherent negative value, negative impact. Yeah. Because you get a diagnosis in order to identify where the roadblocks are or identify what your neurology is or, or where your state of mind is so that you can get the supports necessary so that you can sort. And not just the supports, as soon as you're identified as neurodivergent or as having a mental health condition, you can also work out what the strengths of that condition are and right. utilise your strengths and what environments will help you utilise those strengths. So well, it's training. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Before identification, you sort of, uh, what's that saying called, like getting a needle in a haystack. You're not sure where to look for for students, yeah. where yeah. to look for for the students' strengths. Isn't so it's trying to provide, trying to give people confidence, pride, um, some sort of self-belief, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And it's not just self-belief. I think the greatest skills that we can give our students and our children is a high level of self-awareness. Mm. To actually know who they are, know their strengths, know their challenges, and then take that and know which environments work for them, which environments don't, mm. and the ability to self-advocate, the ability to say, no, this doesn't work for me. Yeah. I do it this way instead? And, and if we equip our kids with those skills, self-confidence, self-efficacy just follow naturally. Yeah. And I guess in the work that you do, you're working a lot with parents, and I guess parents might face the same thing in terms of um, wanting to protect their children or wanting to um, defend their children even. So I'm you know what I mean? schools and our education system is not set up for neurodivergent kids. It's mm. not set up for them. And because of that, Neurodivergent kids are suspended and expelled at a far higher rate than any other students in right. Wales. Um, neurodivergent people in jail outnumber by a factor of three the actual number in the population. Wow. And it is due to a lack of understanding, a, a lack of understanding that some people's brains just function differently. It is not, and I'd like to stress this, it is not through a lack of kindness. No. Teachers. In fact, I would say basically all teachers except for one or two that I've ever met care about their students and want the best for their students. But it is a lack of understanding that we all function differently. And Do you think it's a, a lack of patience as well? Because, I mean, to actually stop and to listen to someone and to, you know, sometimes it doesn't, the, for want of a better word, the diagnosis or 
the, the program or the process isn't as clear straight away. So you do have to take some time. It could be a bit more frustrating to just sit with someone and try to work out how best to support that person or care for that person. I agree with one caveat. I don't think most teachers, again, have an inherent lack of patience. But I do think that the education system over the years has put more and more admin, more and more responsibilities on the teachers. So less and less time at their disposal. And less time means that they have less bandwidth for patients. You're right. That's what you mean. Yeah. But in the, let's say, the mainstream teaching, uh, you know, teachers will have a certain amount of curriculum that they want to get through. And, and this can go for neurodivergent or non-neurodivergent or whatever, you know, any type of student where they may not be able to give the same attention because the need to get through the, you know, the curriculum the, through the content is, is feels far more pressing than just being able to take your time with students. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so it, it's exactly what I'm saying. So say you have a, a teacher with 30 kids in a class and they have five classes, so they have 150 kids that mm. they're currently teaching. They are judged and benchmarked by things like my school website and the HSC mm. by the marks that they get their students. They are also judged by the parents and have a lot of parental pressure to get the kids the highest marks they can. And then they have reports, parent-staff meetings, um, admin as far as making sure that my brain's gone, but making sure that they teach the syllabus and just in case the school gets audited or, or looked at, that every single outcome has been has been reached and every single outcome has been ticked. And all this admin, together with being judged and benchmarked based on marks, means that it's very, very hard to take a class of 30 kids when you've got five of them and look at each individual child's needs. Yeah, right. It is not the teachers. I don't believe it's the schools either. I, I really do think that... Parents and teachers need to understand that they're disenfranchised by exactly the same system. So with your work then, this sort of is connected to what you just said, with your work in going into schools and trying to help um, to promote the education of neurodivergent children, how do you go about that then? If they're caught in this system, What's, what's your in to, to do that? So, look, you are right, um, or what you're getting to is right, that my hands are tied to a certain extent because I work within the system. Um, in 2019, over 70% of kids that were suspended or expelled from New South Wales schools, um, state schools, had a diagnosis of ADHD or autism. Wow. Over 70%, which is a huge figure. I mean how that figure just doesn't make the education system stand up and say, what are we doing wrong? Where are we going wrong? So I get employed by either the school or the parents um, to come in and help with a particular child. Right. So you work just with individuals? Just with individuals. Now, often with when parents call me, it's because 
the child's behaviour has got to a point where the school is saying, we just don't know if we can accommodate. Right. So the first step is usually just to calm the situation down and try and give the school tools to help the child and try and give the parents tools to help their child at home. How do you calm the school down? How do you calm the situation down? um, I did a course at... In, in Canada by a guy named Stuart Shanker, who is phenomenal if you're ever interested in this work. He runs a, a centre called the Merit Centre, M-E-H-R-I-T, and he runs self-regulation. And he teaches that a child cannot self-regulate until that a parent can self-regulate and right. to co-regulate. So a child's ability to self-regulate is very, very much entwined with the parent's ability to co-regulate. Right. The great thing about it is you only need one parent or, or one significant adult who has such great self-regulation that they can co-regulate to teach the child self-regulation skills. Can you, can you explain what that looks like? Well, so firstly, if you went into a classroom and you had a child that was throwing chairs or swearing, having was dysregulated a lot of the time, after it happens, you would then speak with the child. You really need to decipher or, or sort of pull apart whether the child is actively choosing to behave this way or whether the child's level of safety is so low they're dysregulating and they're acting this way in order to control the environment. So if a child is the latter, you can tell this because they will have remorse, mm-hmm. feel bad about how they've behaved. And then the school needs to understand, okay, this child is not choosing to behave this way. What's going on is that this child doesn't feel safe. This child doesn't feel heard. They don't feel understood. They don't feel safe. Well, what do we all do when we don't feel safe? In order to feel safe, we need to control our environment. And so how do I control my environment if I'm autistic? Well, if I'm predominantly autistic, controlling the environment will be me shutting down. Flight, freeze, fight response. I will shut down. I might kick. I might fight you. I might just freeze in the spot and just shut down entirely. I will avoid all demands made of me. If I, my neurology is predominantly ADHD at that moment in time, I will become angry. I will become defiant and I will try and control my environment by being extremely defiant and saying no, get stuffed and, and maybe swearing. But the child is not choosing any of that behaviour. That behaviour is happening because they don't feel safe. Yeah. Instead of looking at the behaviour, we need to go back 10 steps and ask, why does the child not feel safe in this environment? Why does the child not feel heard and understood? Mm. Which goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about... Listening. Having a safe environment. Listening. listening. Now, Stuart Schenker has a, a set of tools that are free on his website that are just phenomenal. And he has them set up for all different age groups. But basically, they're all much the same. 
The first thing you do is you reframe the behaviour. Instead of saying this child is naughty and acting out, you say this child is feeling unsafe and deal with them with compassion rather than punitively. Right. So that's reframing the behaviour. Secondly, you look at why they don't feel safe. Look at the stresses. Now, if the child is articulate enough, they might be able to help you with the stresses. If they're not, again, Stuart Schenger has a whole list that you can go through to help you, but it could be fluorescent lighting can send some neurodivergent kids off the Richter scale. Maybe it's the level of noise. Maybe it's the level of movement in the classroom. Maybe it's because they have some trauma-induced behaviour from a previous class that the second you say the word maths, Mm. their, their anxiety just skyrockets. You look through the stresses. You try and work out which stresses are the worst and then either you reduce them or you eliminate them. But it's all about getting rid of or at least reducing as many stresses as possible so that that student can feel heard and safe. Right. That's great. And so, and how, how have you seen that in, in the time that you've started this, started going into schools? What's, uh, how have you seen I it change? Love, I would love to be able to say to you it works all the time, but it yeah. really just doesn't. Um, so It's tricky, isn't it? Because you really, the kid, I guess the kid doesn't necessarily know the... Um, Observers don't necessarily know, and, but you know that that person's in distress. So what I can say to you is one of the biggest factors of whether it's going... So there are two big factors of whether it's going to work or not. One of the biggest is, is that are the school and the parents on the same team? Mm. If they are on the same team, we are 90% of the way there. Yeah, right. They can be open and honest with each other about what's happening at home as well as what's happening at school, what they're trying, what isn't working, what is working, we are uh, so far down the road. It it is great. The second biggest factor is how soon are we starting this? How long has this behaviour been escalating for? Mm. The faster we can try and work, the better we are at trying to solve it quickly. The longer it's been going on, the longer it's going to take to try and yeah. think about it. If you, if someone says something to you that makes you cringe and makes you feel unsafe at that moment in time, but immediately says, oh, boy, I shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. And you can yeah. back down almost instantly. But imagine someone says something to you on a daily basis for a year. So you have felt unsafe in that person's presence for a whole year. They can then say on the day, 365th day, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, but it's not going to calm you down. What do you do with um, that lack of awareness? Because as you said before, I think people can be caring, people can be kind, but they might say things. I mean, I know in my own uh, role as a parent. I know I've, I've done things for a long time where, which haven't been helpful. You know, one of my kids said to me um, in his late 20s that 
when I, you know, I used to say to him, how, how do you feel about that? Or what do you think about that? And he'd go, I don't know. And I'd say, what do you mean you don't know? Anyway, in his late 20s, he said to me, Dad, remember when you used to say to me, you know, what do you mean you don't know? He used to get really frustrated with that. He used to feel really terrible about that whenever I sort of pointed out, why don't you know? You know, what's wrong? It came across as, what's wrong with you? Now, I feel bad about that because, you know, I did that for a long time and I feel like it was also a gift that he was able to tell that to me that, you know, that made him feel bad and I was able to apologise for that. But still, it did the damage. So what, what is it that stops people being aware of the impact that we have on others just with some of those actions or those words? Or, you know, you're talking before about saying kids' behaviour, they're just a naughty kid and they just need to change their behaviour. But your approach is not about just changing behaviour. It's about looking at why someone feels unsafe. But there's something, I always find like there's something that stops a lot of people from even putting their toes into that area. Thanks for sharing that, Gary. Look, Maya Angelou, um, who's a phenomenal person, said, when you know better, do better. And I really like that saying because I am sure, Gary, knowing you, that you have done the absolute best for your children at every single step of the way. But we are constantly learning, and the more we learn, the better we can do. And there is never any need, and you should never feel, and I know this is easier said than done, but you should never feel guilt or remorse because you made those decisions and you said those things with your child's best interests at heart at that moment in time. And that's all that matters, and your children know that. So even if you do stuff up, which we all do, believe me, um, your children know you love them and your children mm. know you have their back even when you stuff up. Um, I stuff up a lot for myself. Um, my awakening came one day. Um, my two-and-a-half-year-old son did something. I was extremely tired and I got down to his level and I started just screaming at him. Mm. and. Something in my head was saying, stop screaming, stop screaming, and I just couldn't stop myself. I had no idea where my other two children were. My daughter at the time was six. She went and took my 18-month-old child, just, just over a year-old child next door to the next-door neighbour and said, you've got to come inside. And so the next-door neighbour came in. My six-year-old came up the stairs where I was still screaming put her hand on my shoulder and said, Mom, Shane's downstairs and I've put the kettle on. I think you should go and speak to Shane. And I just burst into tears thinking my, my six-year-old has just become my parent. Mm. The very next day I took myself to a psychologist and said, what can I do? And I actually went to a psychologist myself to understand why I was reacting this yeah. way. Not to understand my son's autism, not yeah. to understand why my autistic son was behaving the way he was, but I went to someone to understand my reactions to him. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like it, to, to be self-reflective 
to be self-reflective as a parent to why yeah. I'm acting this way. And that, by the way, Gary, is what led me down to, to Stuart Shanker. And so I then decided, okay, I do, I have bigger, mo- <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. You'll find this funny. My son's psychologist, when he was two and a half, said to me, about the same age as this, he said, um, William has very big emotions, Siobhan. Like he, he really struggles to process these really big emotions, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he does. And he said, is there anyone else in the family like this? And I said, yeah, no, my husband's not like this. And me is definitely not like this. And Patch is just too young to know any different. And he said, no, I, I meant a little closer to home. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that's great, but I thought about it and I thought, yes, I've always struggled. I tend to bury my emotions. I've always struggled to process really large emotions. And so that's when I saw the psychologist and I started working on my own regulation. Um, And then not that far away from that, um, my son, a doctor said my son probably had PDA which is pathological demand avoidance. Have you ever heard of that? No. Can you say that again? Sorry? So it's PDA, pathological demand avoidance. Right. If you ever want to know about it, Christy Forbes, again, is the best person in Australia, I think, to speak about it. Um, but what it is is it's a, it's a type of autism where we, um, they really avoid demands that it's it's very very much demand avoidance right and it comes across as aggression anger a lot of things so i went and looked in england where they actually coined this phrase and went and during the school holidays one year and went and learned all i could about pda and all it taught me after a whole week was that I don't know if I completely believe that it's a standalone condition. I believe that it's extreme anxiety being fed through autistic neurology. And so therefore what I needed to work with on my son was his anxiety and to lower his anxiety levels. And so that's when I came home and then I really started getting into Stuart Shanker's work and doing courses. And and it sounds like a lot of that work for yourself it, it is so they really teach you that you can't teach a child to self-regulate until you're self-regulating oh. that's interesting isn't it like I think um, you know sometimes I talk to people who say I really want to change I've got to try harder to be this person I've got to try harder to behave again it's about changing behavior you know live in a different way I'm going to stop doing this I'm going to stop doing that but it's actually um, in, as you say, that self-regulation, self-reflection, where the change sort of comes without your effort, if you know what I you mean. You hit the nail on the head. There's a, another great book that everyone should read by Sticks, Rudd and Johnson called The Self-Driven Child. Mm. And it's a phenomenal book. It is about children, but you could read it for an adult. And it discusses the difference between self-control and self-regulation. And the real big difference is self-regulation reduces our anxiety levels, makes us healthier. Self-control increases our anxiety levels and makes us less healthy. Mm. So we really need to self-regulate 
rather than self-control. And so it's all about mindset. People should never want to change their behavior. They should try and work out why that behavior is existing and change the thing that's causing the behavior. So when you change the behavior, that's self-control. When you're changing what's causing the behavior, that's self-regulation. That's a good point. Changing because that will lower your anxiety levels and make you a much healthier human being than trying to keep control of your behavior. And I think the other thing too, as you're saying with parenting, is that if you're able to do that for yourself, the people around you or the people closest to you or the people who you may be in conflict with, or not necessarily, well, maybe conflict, but, you know, that, that sort of feed off your own responses and so on, they, they change in your change. Do you know what I mean? Yes, definitely. definitely. And it might not be your expected change, but there, there's definitely a shift. Yeah. And, and be nice to yourself as you would be to other people. It doesn't mm. work all the time. I mean, I'm mm. with myself. I can be as calm and can self-regulate, but if you push me into a state where I'm extremely tired, my ability mm. to self-regulate goes down the hill. If I am exhausted, can't put two sentences together, I mean, my children have a joke that you don't ask mum for anything big after 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> so it's, it, you, you need to know your own environment. Yeah, own yeah that's right, and what you need. When and you what need, you need. Yeah, what you, when you need space, when you need And when you need space. Support, those things. And know what gives <laughs> you space. I mean, for me, and this is going to sound strange, but this is actually not strange, lots of neurodivergent people say the same, having a shower for me is my biggest the thing that calms me down the most. Yeah, no, I've heard that quite a bit, a lot of people. And you have to allow yourself, like often I will want to strangle my children or, or especially my husband and I will just go and <laughs> shower and I will be calmer. The other thing I'll do and, and someone gave Not me, literally. Not literally, no, <laughs> it is literally sometimes. But one of the other pieces of it, pieces of advice that I still do today is reframe my mindset. So, and and I'll use my husband as the example. When I'm having an argument with my husband and I'm furious with him and I can feel it go into meanness, I can feel myself feel mean towards him. Mm. I will take a second and I will think in pictures about our wedding day. Oh, wow. I will do my best to get the feelings of the day flow through me, how much I loved him, how much love there was, how much I cared for him, and I will get those feelings flooding my brain and flooding my body before I continue to discuss whatever we're discussing. Yeah, that's, a, that's a nice little practice. Um, and what I'm doing is I'm making my mindset drive my behaviour towards him Mm. rather than saying to my behaviour, don't scream at him. Mm. That's great. My mindset's driving it. Teachers can do the same thing with parents. So when I've had parents yell at me and call me all sorts of names or whatever else and be incredibly aggressive, I will tend to have this broken record go through my head of, isn't this child so lucky? that their parent loves them so much that they're this upset. 
You're right. This child so lucky that their parent is so full of love for them that it is oozing through every pore. Yeah. Just keep saying to myself, how lucky is this child to have a parent that loves them so much when there are so many kids whose parents couldn't care less? And that reframes my mindset from one of defensiveness towards the parent to one of compassion and, for want of a better word, love. Yeah, so it's sort of trying to change perception, isn't it? It's changing your mindset that you're then compassionate towards the parent because you can't help be compassionate towards someone that loves their child so much. Yeah. And that this anger is coming from a place of love, not from a place of hatred, not from a place of meanness, but from a place of love, and they just don't know how to process it. Yeah. Coming out as anger. Yeah. That's the frustration, isn't it? That's the frustration. And so I work very hard at making my mindset drive my behaviour. How much has this influenced what you do, you know, the business that you have? So my business, I am sure that I am good at what I do because I've sat at all three seats. I've been a teacher for 20-odd years. I am neurodivergent myself. I was suspended from school a dozen times. Right. And I have neurodivergent kids. And so I know exactly what it feels like to be both the child at the table and to be the parent at the table and the teacher. And so because of that, it all drives me. Being a parent to my children influences me greatly. Being neurodivergent myself and my experiences growing up and being suspended and struggling with the school system, that definitely influences me. And then being a parent, uh, being a teacher for 20 years influences me greatly too. And and I think that's why I'm good at what I do is because all three pieces of the table where I can understand where every single person is coming from. Yeah, so it's more than just knowledge. I mean, you have a lot of knowledge and you've, you've read very widely about this, but also I, I feel like there's something in you that drives this as well. Yes, it, it is definitely. Look, I started it because I read that statistic in 2019 and then I started working for the Ministry of Education in Singapore and I thought because of who I am and my unique position, I guess, in the world, where I have all this different experience, I was making such a difference to kids. Mm. And that's what I went into teaching for, to make a difference to kids. Um, and so, yes, and, but Gary, can I tell you something exciting? Sure. Just last week graduated from my Master's of Education. No, yeah, congratulations. University. That's great. So how exciting is that? So yeah. I just, it's a Master's of Education for students that are gifted, neurodivergent, learning difficulties, um, and the only one of its kind in the world. So it's in America. And they asked me, Gary, I'm very excited, they asked me to come back as an adjunct professor, an adjunct Oh, wow, that's fantastic. teach an introductory course to the, the new university. That's great. Good on you. Um, well, I think it's, it's wonderful what you're doing, you know. But if we can really educate schools and teachers, to understand we will have far less mental health consequences. So especially girls, but autistic girls that mask and look okay, 
about 80% of them end up having mental health consequences by mm. things. And we can prevent that. I mean, together we can prevent that just by taking a group of well-meaning teachers, which are all the teachers, and educating them to how to support these students before things go off the rails. Yeah. Good on you. It's been really good to talk to you today. And if anyone out there wants to um, ask more questions or get in touch with Siobhan, by all means, contact me and I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> And if you've got um, any... The business, by the way, if they just want to look it up, is yeah. Embrace. Embrace Difference. <laughs> okay. It's called Embrace Difference. <laughs> um, so they're welcome to contact me through the, the website as well. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. So once again, thanks for listening to us talk about this very, very important um, issue. And I hope you've got something out of it. All right, so take care, everyone. See you next time. Bye.